Hi, this is David Flower, senior pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S., and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast, and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the Giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Well, thanks for joining us in worship uh, together as a church family. Uh, we continue our Lent to Easter series this morning, Waging Peace, a Journey with Jesus through Holy Week. At the beginning of Holy Week, Jesus looked out over Jerusalem and cried aloud, if only you knew the things that make for peace. And then Jesus spends each day confronting injustice, calling out oppressors, contending for peace. How did he do this? Uh, What did that look like? That's what we're giving attention to each week in this series as we discover anew why Jesus is called the Prince of Peace and what it looks like when we're waging peace like him. As I said last Sunday, this series is based on Jason Porterfield's book, Fight Like Jesus, How Jesus Waged Peace Throughout Holy Week, which is published by Herald Press, and Anabaptist Press. I'm following the book fairly closely, and, and so you may want to buy that book and, and choose to marinate in the focus for each week. Also, you may want to use the small group discussion questions that are posted along with the sermons at our website and, and podcast just to go deeper. Last week, we began our series with the first day of Holy Week, known as Palm Sunday. We reflected on the intentionality and the meaning of Jesus riding into Jerusalem there in his final week, during Passover, on a donkey, to the waving of palm branches. I tried to paint the scene for us and what all of that meant, how we could fully grasp what happened that day in a Of course, we saw Jesus weep, heard him cry aloud over people's failure to accept him and to embrace his way of peacemaking. And again, for Jesus, remember, peace is about the shalom of God. That Hebrew word shalom is not simply the absence of conflict and violence. Shalom is about the presence of goodness and blessing. It looks like health and harmony and wholeness in every area of life with all people. Shalom is about us flourishing in our relationship with God, with others, and all of creation. Shalom, God's peace, is what it looks like when everything is as God wants it to be. So lock that definition into your mind when we talk about peace. That's what we're talking about. This is the sort of peace that Jesus worked for And calls his followers to actively advance until he comes again to the earth to bring the fullness of the kingdom. As we'll continue to see today and throughout uh, the rest of the series. It's now day two of Holy Week, Holy Monday. This morning we're going to look at perhaps the most misunderstood thing that Jesus did in Holy Week. When he went into the temple with a homemade whip, turning over tables, driving out animals and the money changers along with them. This event on Holy Monday has been used, maybe you've heard it, 
been used by some misguided Christians to justify a self-indulgent anger toward oppressors and violence against evildoers by others. And so in the second message of our series, I'm going to try and help us make sense of Jesus' actions and then apply that, that example to our own lives in a message entitled, The Whip of Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you once again, and we recognize that the words which we're about to read in the Scripture are from you, inspired by you. Lord, help us to get our life from Jesus, all of our life from Jesus, and nowhere else. God, help us to be honest with the idols that are in our heart. Help us, Lord, to surrender everything that we have to you. Holy Spirit, we ask that you speak to us. Show us where we need to align our lives with your truth and with the Son, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Well, grab your Bible, if you would, and turn with me to our main scripture reading, the Gospel of John, chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. There's pew Bibles and the pew back in front of you if you don't have a Bible or you can open up to an app on your phone. And as you're doing that, would you stand with me as we read John chapter 2, verse 13 through 22. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. You follow along whatever translation you have. John 2, verse 13. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration, so Jesus went to Jerusalem In the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifices. He also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. Jesus made a whip from some ropes and chased them all out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and the cattle, scattered the money changers, coins over the floor, and turned over their tables. Then going over to the people who sold doves, he told them, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Then his disciples remembered this prophecy from the scriptures. Passion for God's house will consume me. But the Jewish leaders demanded, what are you doing? If God gave you authority to do this, show us a miraculous sign to prove it. All right, Jesus replied, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. What? they exclaimed. It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to rebuild it in three days? But when Jesus said this temple, he meant his own body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this, and they believed both the scriptures and what Jesus had said. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. As we saw last week, there are a few things to unpack in this scene so that we can get the full picture of what Jesus was doing in the temple and what he means by what he said. 
First, notice each gospel writer has given their account of Jesus in the temple that day. You can see that on the screen there. Mark chapter 11, Matthew chapter 21, Luke 19, as we read John chapter 2. So John puts this event at the beginning of his gospel. Did you ever notice that? So Palm Sunday is supposed to be the final week and then Holy Monday. All this is in the final week. But John puts it at the beginning of his gospel, mainly for theological reasons. But the synoptic gospels each tell us this happened once. One time following Jesus' donkey ride into Jerusalem. This scene has been described as the cleansing of the temple. You've heard that? Or maybe the clearing of the temple. New Testament scholar Tom Wright believes we should see this as a, as Jesus rather shutting the place down or at least signifying God's judgment on it and its coming collapse. And what occurred there was not a spontaneous outburst of anger, we should notice. Instead, we have good reason to believe that it was all calculated and planned by Jesus. Listen to what Mark tells us at the end of Palm Sunday in Mark 11, verse 11. He says, Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Bethany is about two miles on the other side of the Mount of Olives, and Jesus stayed there, particularly during uh, Passover, there in Holy Week, because he has friends in Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, who he had raised from the dead, you'll recall, on Saturday. The Greek Orthodox Church calls that Lazarus Saturday. Did you ever notice that Jesus raised Lazarus, his greatest miracle on a Sabbath? Many reasons why the religious leaders are furious with Jesus and think this is the last straw. If he can raise the dead, what else can he do? We have to stop this man. And notice Mark tells us that Jesus scoped out the temple. He assessed the situation there at the end of Palm Sunday before starting his work on Monday. And then he retreated there for the night and before coming back to begin waging peace again. So I want you to submit to you, I want to submit this to you, that what Jesus does in the temple, which we're going to look at more closely in just a moment, should first be seen not as an impulsive and spontaneous act of anger, but rather as premeditated prophetic theater in the spirit of the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah? What do you mean? Well, listen to what Jesus says after his prophetic act. In Mark's account, he says in verse 17, chapter, chapter 11, And as he taught them, he said, it is, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? If you have, like, say, a study Bible, specifically the NIV study Bible, you notice these footnotes are taken from there. On the first quote, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. It shows us there that Jesus is quoting from Isaiah chapter 56. And if you go and read Isaiah, all of Isaiah chapter 56, you can read God's feelings toward non-Jews and his desire for them to be included in temple worship and ultimately into his kingdom 
which would have been, of course, challenging a nationalist ideology. And then Jesus says, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus is quoting Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11. Jeremiah 7 verses 1 through 11 records God's word through Jeremiah that their trust in the temple is misplaced if they think that they can oppress the poor and the foreigner, that they can cheat people, worship idols, and then pretend that God doesn't care or notice. This is what Jeremiah is going on about in chapter 7. Jeremiah said the temple was and had become a den of thieves. And that God's wrath would be poured out there due to their unfaithfulness. So in other words, Jesus is saying, and by this interpreting his, his acts there in the temple, he says, you have made my father's house a hiding place and a home as a religious cover for people who really love their sin and aren't interested in being freed from it. And so as an object lesson, as we saw with the prophet Jeremiah, Jesus is embodying God's feeling toward his people, toward their tainted worship, and he's pointing to the coming destruction of the temple for their refusal to repent. And everyone would have understood that Jesus, in doing what Jesus was doing that day, was playing the role of Jeremiah. So when Jesus, when Jesus enters the temple and he sees that the outer, what was known as the court of the Gentiles, had become a marketplace, no doubt he burned with a holy passion and zeal for justice, fairness, and God's righteousness. From what we can tell, the priests and the temple leadership were getting rich through their ridiculous exchange rates. That is, when, when folks came from all over the empire, they were required to use temple currency. And they were exploiting the poor who'd made a Passover pilgrimage and needed animals for sacrifice, sometimes being told that their animals aren't good enough and that they need to buy from the temple. Sounds like some sporting events you might go to. You can't take your own stuff. You can't take your own food. You've got to buy their high-priced items. We can imagine that it was already infuriating to Jesus that women and children were separated from the Jewish men in worship. Not hard to imagine that based on what Jesus has said, based on Jesus' inclusion of women in his ministry. It would have been especially troubling to Jesus that Gentiles were worn by inscriptions on the dividing wall, which we have archaeological evidence for. I've shown you a picture of this before. An inscription on the dividing wall that separated the outer court from the inner courts that crossing that boundary would result in the transgressor's death. It basically was saying, you cross this boundary, you're asking for it, and it's on you. Wow. So so think of all that, and then to come into the temple courts and to see that the space reserved for Gentiles to worship God had been turned into a market with the smells and the noises of animals, with the buying and the selling of overpriced goods, and an atmosphere that reeked of greed, exclusion, oppression, and injustice. And because it's the temple, all this activity portrayed God in a corrupt way to outsiders. Did this trouble Jesus? You bet it did. 
So what else would we expect from the God-man who had proclaimed good news to the poor? Freedom for the prisoners. Recovery of sight to the blind. Who said he came to set the oppressed free and announce that God's kingdom was coming through him. So yeah, Jesus was definitely going to respond. He was going to resist this evil and injustice. Because love is active. It is not passive. Love doesn't look away. Love confronts that which is unloving. And that's what Jesus does when he fashions a homemade whip from likely from some of the animal bedding that was there. At least what is described in the making of this whip would have been found there in this marketplace scene. Let's imagine the scene, understand what is happening here. Uh, This picture you're looking at is from the Gospel of John, the 2003 film. Remember, Jesus is a well-known rabbi, not just some random dude at this point. He's a well-known rabbi and prophet and healer who had just raised a guy from the dead a couple days before. He's said to be the Messiah by some. So many people, especially temple leadership, would have been watching and waiting. In a sense, this would be like sort of a celebrity showing up to the temple. People definitely would have been watching Jesus. I think it's important to remember that based on their response. I think their response probably would have been different if it had not been Jesus. We'll get to that. So when Jesus quickly fashions a whip of cords, as as we read, uh, one translation may say reeds, this is not something that can do any real harm to humans, by the way. And he begins shooing out the animals and turning over tables. Many folks would have quickly seen this popular but controversial rabbi making a public statement. You can easily imagine the temple leaders thinking, oh, he thinks he's like Jeremiah, does he? We've seen that film, or in this case, we've read those scriptures. We understand what he's doing. Notice they respond to Jesus, not like he's some, as I said, random Passover pilgrim, but rather as the popular Palm Sunday king. He was being watched with great interest. They, they ask him. Instead of shooing him out, they stop and ask him this question. What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? In other words, by what power and authority do you do these things? Who gives you the right? Jesus responds to them by saying, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. You might have missed this, but in other places, you know, when they ask Jesus by what authority he does something, he is usually speaking in his own, in fact, always speaking in his own authority. You have already said, but I say to you, not rabbi so-and-so, I say to you. So destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Now, of course, Jesus knows they're not going to understand his real meaning. Even his own disciples didn't understand it. John inserts that commentary in there at the end of the passage we read to tell us that they understood it later. They understood it after the resurrection. 
What is Jesus saying? He's saying he is greater than the temple, made of stone, made of hands. His body is the temple. He is replacing the temple on earth. Some of us need to factor that into our theology when we look at what's going on across the ocean. Too many Christians for so long have missed this. Jesus is the greater, better temple, so I don't know what some people are waiting on. Jesus is the temple. His body is the temple. He's replacing the temple on the earth. His resurrection will be proof of his power and authority if you don't believe him. This is what Jesus is saying. His death and resurrection will mark the end of an era and the beginning of a new age and a new covenant as John aims to communicate in his gospel. So we have to ask, based on what I've just shared, was Jesus violent in the temple that day? Well, real quick, let's consider the evidence summed up in one slide. Number one, as we've already pointed out, his actions were planned. This is not an impulsive temple tantrum. (laughs) This isn't Jesus just responding and reacting on a whim. Jesus had thought this through. Number two, his whip was made of cords and some scholars say a, a wicker kind of material. Some of you may have wicker furniture on your patios. This is, rather than a weapon, this is closer to what you might think of as a stage prop. For Jesus' prophetic theater. Number three, his words are tied to the actions of Jeremiah. Jesus is intending to communicate that he is like this. He is coming in the spirit of Jeremiah, and he's judging what is happening there and God's authority in the temple. Number four, his actions did not provoke the temple guard or the nearby Roman garrison. Maybe you've never noticed that. If Jesus was truly displaying and putting on violence, they would have reacted, no doubt. No doubt. They had the temple guard. They had a Roman garrison in the Antonio Fortress, which is a big tower that Jesus would have strolled by on the donkey as he entered into Jerusalem. But none of those folks were activated. You know, I've seen a few Jesus films, maybe you have too, where Jesus does this. It's always interesting to see how they portray Jesus there in the temple doing this may say something about their theology and the way that they depict it. Uh, But one thing you might notice is sometimes it would show the temple guards start to react to Jesus, and yet the religious leaders, the Sadducees, other temple leaders hold them back. Why is that? Because they recognize this is Jesus of Nazareth, a popular person, and if they do something and the crowd isn't ready for it, well, they could have a riot uh, and, and bring on the wrath of Rome, and they don't want that. This is why they've been very careful in trying to trap Jesus. And this is why they will hold a mock trial in the middle of the night so that all of his followers and the crowds who, who agreed with Jesus or liked Jesus wouldn't see what they were doing. And number five there. And you can see this if you have a little knowledge of the biblical language, that John's Greek word usage rules out violence by Jesus. Literally, it says he drove out from the temple all, both sheep and cattle. And yet, while Jesus didn't employ violence in the temple or in any of his other peacemaking, we mustn't make the mistake, hear me, of assuming that nonviolence means doing nothing. 
I mean, how many times I've been in conversation with folks where this whole nonviolence thing is new to them. And, and it's really striking that to say that you're not going to do violence equates for many people doing nothing. What does it say about our imagination? Certainly not a kingdom one. If that's all that we can think of in times of challenge. So we mustn't make the mistake here of assuming that nonviolence means doing nothing or being passive toward evil and justice. Was Jesus doing nothing? Was Jesus passive toward evil and justice? Well, surely you can see that and answer with a no. Listen to this quote from Jason Porterfield's book, Fight Like Jesus. He says, for Jesus, pacifism could never be equated with passivism. Refusing to act violently was never a refusal to act. When all was not right, Jesus never sat idly by doing nothing. Love compelled him to act. Love moved him to resist evil with every fiber of his being. And Jesus intends for the same act act of love to be found in all who embrace his approach to peacemaking. And that, my friends, that is what the whip of Christ looks like. It says everyone, everyone has dignity and worth in God's eyes. Everyone made in God's image. From the poor peasant pilgrim being exploited at the temple on that Passover to the political and religious elite who are doing the exploiting. All have dignity and worth. All made in God's image. From the victims of oppression and violence today to the ones doing the harming and the hurting. God help us to develop a kingdom imagination to resist nonviolently as Jesus does. To be willing to be bold and courageous to believe that through Calvary-like love, through self-sacrificial, Jesus-looking love, we can stop the cycle of violence. But of course, in order to do that, we must be willing to lay our lives down. To love them all, we must wage peace as Christ does on Holy Monday. So let's now sum up what we've seen and heard in Jesus' example with these three lessons. And for this morning, I'm going to share a story, a brief story from three congregants to go along with each of these lessons. Lesson number one, Christ-like peacemakers assess before they act. I got permission from Julia Johnson to share this story, her work with 180. You know Julie Johnson is a, a congregant here. Uh, Julie, just raise your hand there. Also, the, can you raise your hand? <laughs> a little bit higher. Executive Director of uh, 180 Ministries. And she shares this story of an example of Christ-like peacemakers who assess before they act. Several years ago, she said, we were loving on a friend who was experiencing homelessness. We came upon an opportunity to get her into an apartment. I went full speed ahead We did a ton of work to get it furnished, filled the cupboards and the fridge with food, decorated it, and got her all moved in. We were so excited for her, 
proud of how everyone had pulled together to make it happen for her. It was perfect, or so we thought. A major thing we forgot was to stop and pray before moving forward with this task. Not one time did we pray and ask God if this was what he wanted or if it was his timing or his way. Within two weeks of moving her into her new home, she became very withdrawn and sad. It wasn't long after that she, she left that space and moved back to a tent under the bridge. Julia says, I was angry, confused, and frustrated. I mean, all the work the team had done and how God had come through and how in the world could she just throw it away like this. And she said, then I prayed. God gently reminded me that I never had a conversation with him before moving ahead with my own plans. He showed me that I was trying to fix her according to what I thought she needed. God said, Jules, it's not your job to fix. It's your job to love. Leave the rest to me. This young lady wasn't ready to leave the community she was a part of and became very depressed without her family of friends. It's where she felt safe and comfortable. God showed me that without consulting him first, I would continue to make these mistakes. And if I truly wanted to love people where they were, I had to surrender the process and results to him. He said, if she chooses to stay in her tent, then you love her by pulling up a carpet square and sit in her tent with her. Julie said, I learned so much on that small piece of carpet in that small tent. An example of Christ-like peacemakers assessing before they act. Lesson number two. Christ-like peacemakers are not passive. This story you may have seen on our church Facebook page this week. Uh, Greta Owen said I could share this story. Last month, on January 16th, more than 100 Anabaptist Christians, including our very own Greta Owen, was arrested by Capitol Police for holding a peaceful occupation of the Cannon House office building in D.C. as they sang peace-focused hymns in typical Mennonite fashion, four-part harmony, and prayed for a permanent ceasefire in Gaza, a release of all hostages, and an end to the occupation of Palestine. Greta said, we sang all the way to the police vans. Greta describes herself as a lifelong rule keeper. So volunteering to be one of those who would be arrested felt very risky to Greta. You can imagine how she must have felt. Fortunately, the protesters, including the 200 or so others who demonstrated outside the building with songs and prayers, were well prepared for their actions by volunteers from Mennonite Action. And Greta said, We didn't expect that our protests would change the minds of legislators who see the war effort differently from us, but we hope that our actions sent a message to people in Gaza that we are aware of their suffering and that we are speaking out and stepping up on their behalf. We also wanted to show our culture a different face to protesting. It doesn't have to look angry. No one was pushing, shoving, or yelling. Singing had a calming effect on all involved. Thank you, Greta. Lesson number three. Christ-like peacemakers channel their zeal, their passion, into acts that heal and restore 
not injure or destroy. Otto Monroy said I could share this. Otto is the president of Logos Works and COO of Logos Academy in York. One example of the kind things Otto is doing to channel his zeal into acts that heal and restore is seen through his role with Logos Works. He's worked on an initiative, the York County Safety Collab, to bring together police departments in York County to help improve relationships between police and the public and help pay for training and cutting-edge non-lethal equipment. All 17 police departments in York County have decided to come together under the guidance of Logos Works to better earn the community's trust and tackle the increasing uneasiness of safety in neighborhoods. Just think of it, church. 17 police departments had never done this before. But with the help of Logos Works, it happened. If you're interested in learning more about that, you can find out more at www.yorkcountysafetycollab.org. Otto, thank you for your work and your example. Folks, Christ-like peacemakers assess before they act. Christ-like peacemakers are not passive. No, we're active. Christ-like peacemakers channel their zeal into acts that heal and restore Imputing dignity and worth and recognizing dignity and worth in all people. Not to injure or destroy. Finally, here are some questions for personal reflection to help us respond to what the Spirit is saying to us through the message. Would you think about some of these? Reflect on these. Just where you are and prayerfully consider what the Lord is saying to you. Number one, Do I assess the situation before reacting to an issue or problem? Maybe you have a story to tell like Julia where you didn't pray, you didn't assess, you didn't do your homework. You wanted to help. Maybe your motives were good. But because you didn't assess, you made a mess of things. How do you need to listen and learn more before you try to help? What's God saying to you about number one there? Number two, ask yourself, have I wrongly assumed that the nonviolent way of Jesus is passive, is doing nothing? How is God inviting me to reimagine love in action. How's God inviting you to do that? Of course, as I already said, I mean, the chances are that we would have to lay our life down literally and die is slim. But in order to break the cycle and this trust in the myth of redemptive violence, you have to take up your cross. You have to be willing to follow Jesus. We'll say more about that as we go along in our series. Number, number three, question number three. What would it look like if you challenged or channeled your zeal and passion for righteousness into acts that aim to resist, heal, and restore? What would that look like where you live, work, and play within your sphere of influence as a peacemaker, Intent on waging peace the way Jesus does. 
What does that look like? How can you channel your passion into acts that aim to resist, heal, and restore? As we continue to reflect on these questions, let's pray together. Holy Spirit, would you help us to develop a kingdom imagination? God, we, we have to confess that we have trusted in the power of the sword and the power of violence. So much so that it's really hard for us to imagine what you can do if we will follow in your footsteps. So enlarge our imagination. Help us to see, God, what you see. Help us to experience the power of the cross. Help us, Lord, to assess the situation. To think, what would Jesus do? Or maybe even, what did Jesus do? God, help us to not assume that the non-violent way of Jesus is doing nothing. And God, help us to channel our zeal and passion for righteousness into acts that affirm the dignity and worth of all people and that aim to resist, heal, and restore. Lord, speak to us, for your servants are listening. We pray these things in the holy name of Jesus. Amen.